0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
1: Hi there. Good afternoon and welcome to The Country Hour. Selena Green bringing you the program again today. Coming up, I'm going to cover hay and fodder fires. This is this something you've experienced yourself recently? Do you have the feeling that there seems to be more of them this summer than usual?
2: We believe there seems to be sort of an unprecedented level or certainly a very high number of hay fires since sort of spring through to now. You know, it goes without saying that hay fires have a huge impact in terms of damaged infrastructure such as sheds resources of emergency service personnel and obviously those flow-on effects in terms of that fodder being lost to the supply chain.
1: More on that in a moment and the help that the fodder association is asking from you to help them pull together a bit of a picture of what is going on with those fires. As I said, more to come. Also, you may have been watching the ongoing protest by European farmers with interest. Well, there's been a development and something of a win for those farmers, so stick around to hear more about that. My talkback number today, 1300 222 891 or send me a text on 0467 922 891. Well, unfortunately, there will be likely to be more intense and extended droughts in South Australia's future, and that's according to a new report that's been published this week. The international study undertaken by Flinders Uni compared the climate to others in the Southern Hemisphere to look at long-term trends and signs of climate change. Co-author of the study, Professor Patrick Hesp, says farmers will have to navigate more weather extremes in the coming years.
3: So this is
4: a um, comparison as well between Argentinian uh, and some hemisphere events 1970 to 2021 and looking at temperature and rainfall particularly and other indices of potential global warming in the southern hemisphere. And so in that period we've found in South Australia that maximum and minimum temperatures have increased by 1.1 and 0.7 degrees uh, respectively. Precipitation has had a negative trend overall of up to 50 millimetres per period, so there's a reduction in the annual amount of rainfall, but there's also an increase in extreme rainfall events, and that tends to be concentrated in coastal areas and far less so in the continental areas, although bear in mind, you know, in the central and western continental areas of South Australia, we, we don't have that many stations. Extreme hot events have shown a general increase in that period, and hotter days have shown an increase ranging from 2.4 to 3.7 uh, degrees C. So, you know, relatively significant changes. We are seeing, as I, as I may have mentioned, more severe rainfall events, and heavy rainfall has increased by about 5 millimeters in that 1970-20. to 21 period um, but decreased in the continental regions that's for heavy rainfall you know and and extreme events there are signals of climate warming there if you like
5: right so yes quite a few you know changes and and signals are they accelerating or are a lot of those changes in in the last you know five years what's what's been the trend uh,
4: the trend the trend over that period 70 to, to 21 uh, is Uh, upwards for uh, many of them and, uh, you know, decreases in other cases. But there's a general increasing trend throughout, uh, particularly, you know, rainfall temperature, extreme events. uh, And there's a lot of noise. You know, there are periods, of course, where some years the temperature is lower than the norm. But overall, we're seeing statistically significant trends in several of the major indices uh, over that period of time.
5: Were there any differences when it comes to regions of South Australia?
4: Yeah, so as, as I mentioned, the continental areas are showing uh, less extreme rainfall events compared to the coastal areas. And, and that's likely you know, a larger scale connection with the Southern Ocean in terms of perhaps how the southern annular mode is behaving or the, you know, these other large drivers in South Australia of climate change.
5: So, what might all this mean for the agricultural sector? May farmers and graziers have to deal with conditions they traditionally haven't been used to. I,
4: I, I think probably a lot of them are very much smarter about this stuff uh, than, than me, for example. Particularly, you know, with smart agriculture becoming much more common. But certainly, as CSIRO have predicted, we are seeing less spring rainfall. And so, you know, the start of the growing season is being delayed, which, which means, for example, impacts, but p- particularly on crops and uh, crop production. Uh, and also, there is, uh, you know, some indication by CSIRO and others that we will see uh, increased fires, um, particularly related to the lesser rainfall and uh, hotter extremes. And so, you know, fires can have a significant impact on the landscape. Plus those closer to coastal areas may perhaps see greater activity uh, and activation of some of our big dune systems, particularly uh, and possibly after, you know, fires combined with more extreme temperatures, hotter events uh, and less rainfall.
5: And expected to continue into the future, these, these changes and effects of climate change?
4: if you just read the current trends and those that are statistically significant you would think so however you know we still don't know enough about kind of larger larger cycles and so you know i would still express some caution that it's just going to keep going because you know while these are indicators of global climate warming it's not an extremely long period to make huge predictions into the future. Uh, But certainly some of the models that CSIRO and others have done indicate that that could well be the case.
1: That is Professor Patrick Hesp from Flinders University speaking with Elsie Adamo. It takes us to 11 minutes past 12. Well, in overseas news, farmers protesting across Europe are hopeful a policy to set aside 4% of their arable land will be paused for a year and allow them to plant more crops. It translates to an extra 50 million hectares of cropping going into the ground and clearly has flown effects for the grain market and prices. Andrew Whitelaw is the co-founder of Episode3.net. He says the EU's set-aside policy has been around for a long time. It's a big part of the region's environmental programs and subsidy regimes.
6: At its most basic level is farmers have to set aside 4% of their arable land or their cropping land to unproductive purposes, so fallow effectively. So they can't grow a crop on 4% of their land. And so that is how they get their subsidies or a lot of their subsidies. But what's happened is the last three or four months, you might have seen, and I think you guys have covered it on ABC, a lot of farmer protests in Europe. A lot of tractors going down uh, the, the sort of capital cities in, in European nations. And this is a proposed policy from the EU Commission is to temporarily for one year uh, get rid of this set aside for 4% and allow farmers to crop 100%. And uh, and that's that is significant.
1: What are the implications
6: of that? If you look at Europe as a, as a trading block, you're talking about 50 million hectares of cropping ground. So you're talking 4%, might not sound like much, but it's significant, especially just to be put into action in a, in a short period of time. And so if, if I just take some sort of back of the uh, cigarette packet sort of numbers, potentially, you know, 5 million tons of wheat, potentially half a million to a million tons of canola, And that's a significant volume of grain to come onto the market.
1: Why is the EU considering this?
6: Yeah, so in in part it's to sort of placate these protesters in Europe. Uh, Farmers are, you know, the same as in Australia, but probably worse over there. They are facing uh, significant increases in input costs, especially since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so their costs are rising. But at the same time, you know, we've got some fairly rampant food inflation over there like i was in the uk just in over christmas and i couldn't believe that cost of beer two years ago from two pounds fifty to six pounds fifty but what this does is it puts more food onto the market which has the potential of reducing the cost of food so they're looking at it as a two-pronged approach I placate farmers placate consumers and allow that for a year there is some caveats in that the farmers who want this exemption have to plant seven percent of their crop to nitrogen fixing crops so we may see an increase in some crops as well like say lentils as an example i think would be one that they could go for and peas but it's a really interesting change because it is always been a sort of a thing that they would never touch is a set-aside policy
1: How likely is it that the EU is going to approve this and and remove this set-aside policy?
6: Well, it seems like this is obviously only a temporary uh, reprieve for, for one year for 2024 and the vote is due to come in in the next couple of days. Who knows, but I think it's got a fairly reasonable chance of success. And what does it mean back here in Australia for the industry for growers? Look, it's it's definitely one to watch for. I believe that Europe is always one to keep an eye on, especially in Western Australia for canola. If they do see huge acreages going in for canola this year, let's say that even on the low end, they produce another 500,000 tons of canola or rapeseed that reduces their demand for for Australian canola. And uh, that has serious implications because we trade you know, upwards of 60% of our canola will go to Europe on an average year.
1: So what could be the implications for prices then? Obviously downward pressure, but any kind of uh, scale of what we might be looking at?
6: Look, it's too early to say. Like this hasn't even gone through the parliament, but as we all know, uh, supply and demand is what drives markets. And if we have big supplies coming onto the marketplace, then... That only has downward pressure.
1: Mm. Well, it's definitely something for growers to be watching. I mean, we're just sort of in that preparation stage here in Australia, aren't we, looking at the season ahead and what to to plant, what not to plant. Should this be a factor that farmers are considering?
6: Look, I think when we're looking at planting decisions, I think are one of the hardest things a farmer can do. The one thing I've always said to farmers is don't look at the price at seeding to help you decide that because there's no real relationship between the price of seeding and the price of harvest. Speak to your agronomist and find out what is the best thing for you to grow, but forget about price. Look at the agronomics. What what are you going to get the best yield for? What is going to support your soils the best? Because Again, unless you're going to sell it straight away, price of seeding has no relevance to the price at harvest.
1: Andrew Whitelaw there, Grain Market Analyst at episode3.net, speaking with Belinda Varaschetti. Another development in the past 24 hours. According to reporting by the BBC, the head of the European Commission has announced plans to scrap a proposal halving pesticide use across the EU. And that reversal still needs to be formally approved. But pesticide reduction is amongst the number of grievances that farmers in countries including France, Belgium and the Netherlands have been demonstrating against in recent weeks.
0: You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
1: Well, have you lost any hay or fodder to fire in recent months? If so, the Australian Fodder Industry Association wants to know about it. As it says, reports of hay fires seem to be much higher than previous seasons. It's collating a list of where they've happened. Hopefully understand why and what can be done about it. The association's CEO is Paula Fitzgerald. I spoke with her earlier and asked her whether anecdotally fires have increased.
2: Yes, well, I think what's happened is we believe there seems to be sort of an unprecedented level or certainly a very high number of hay fires since sort of spring through to now. Um, And obviously in some areas it's been a little bit damper than expected. Um, So we just thought it was an opportunity to really have a look at this. And I guess, you know, it goes without saying that hay fires have a huge impact in terms of the loss of fodder, uh, damaged infrastructure such as sheds, resources of emergency service personnel and obviously those flow-on effects in terms of fodder, that fodder being lost to the supply chain, particularly to the livestock industry.
1: Because, yeah, these can add up to some pretty big losses to individual uh, operators and producers, but I imagine that uh, by removing that hay from the overall pool of, of what's available, that it is a concern.
2: Yeah, it certainly is, and I think um, really what we're trying to do here is have a look at the data and start our sort of whole of supply chain discussion about this situation, and I think probably the Fodder Industry Association, better known as AFIA, is probably a bit unique in that even though we have a broad national membership, our core membership is, is what I often refer to as fodder first. So people I saw whose primary business or a major part of their business is uh, producing fodder and so within those people and businesses there's actually a wealth of fodder information sort of at their fingertips and I think you know those people have tried and tested many options and parameters they're constantly sharing information they're gathering new knowledge and putting it to the test and ultimately sharing that to deliver a better product and better outcomes so I guess what we're trying to do here is say there is a wealth of information sitting here. It's probably time we sat down as a whole, had a look at that and really looked at how we tackle this issue. And I'm not going to suggest that what I call the fodder first have every answer to hay fires or they've never been subject to fires. But I think it's really time we tapped what I call that inherent knowledge.
1: If it is the case that there are, you know, quite a few more happening than there have been in previous years, is there any idea of why that might be the case? Oh, look,
2: I think what I'm trying to say is a lot of potter firsts have theories and have tested theories on this. But I I probably think there's a couple of key reasons why we sort of need to look at this. I mean, first of all, there's the obvious opportunity. Let's actually share the information we have. So we know not everyone produces fodder all the time and sometimes people do it as an opportune uh, event say when a grain crop is going to fail so let's have a look at what information we've got across the board what's the best strategy what are the key parameters that producers should really be examining you know what are the ideal cutting and baling conditions moisture levels mold count all of those sort of things Um, I think secondly when it comes to this, I mean, everyone, uh, but agriculture businesses included at the moment is having a discussion about the cost of insurance premiums. Um, So we believe there's a great opportunity if we can manage the risk or reduce or completely eliminate hay fires, then hopefully we should be able to get a bit of a reduction in those uh, premiums. Um, I think thirdly, there's a whole new range of what I'll call hay fire risk management tools available at the moment. And we're also in this era of new technology and AI. So we think that presents an opportunity for fodder producers, but I guess how do we make sure that the technology people, that the best science and the best tech minds are actually really targeting the heart of our problem and working with us to address this industry um, issue? So I think that's pretty critical. And the last thing I'd just say is, and perhaps even to some degree more importantly, but you know, we're constantly hearing in agriculture about drought preparedness and resilience, but we're not really seeing that fodder is taking a key part in that equation. And, you know, I guess we'd say fodder is sort of almost of national importance. And sometimes during crisis times, we see uh, fodder being come into focus, I guess, is what I'd call sort of a reactionary response tool from governments and others. But we'd really like to see it be a bit more of a focus in the, non-crisis times, so that when the crisis comes, uh, we're in a much more positive position. So I guess in some ways we'd say that's almost, um, you know, it's an old saying, but making hay while the sun shines. So let's see if we can get people thinking more strategically about their fodder supply and making and storing a quality product in good times, uh, so that we are truly more resilient in those other times. <laughs>
1: That's the Australian Fodder Industry Association CEO, Paula Fitzgerald. If you'd like to contribute to that map they're putting together of uh, fires in recent months, go to their website or there is a link up on their Facebook page. Now, we need to check in uh, with the latest results from the Mount Compass sale and Elsie Adamo has the results for you today. Hi, Elsie.
5: Good afternoon, Selena. Numbers reduced as agents offered 864 live weight and open auction cattle. Quality was extremely mixed with a larger percentage of two score descriptions in all classes and fewer ideally finished grown cattle. Young cattle made up a large percentage of the offering that included 408 steers, 298 heifers, and 113 cows. The usual buyers were in attendance and operating along with feeders and restockers. Prices were generally firm for the type and condition, with secondary cattle easing marginally across the offering. The few ideally finished grown cattle sold to a slightly dearer trend. Vela steers sold from 241 to 349 cents, as Vela heifers ranged from 220 to 331 cents. Yielding steers ranged from 230 to 327 cents, with yielding heifers selling from 221 to 305 cents per kilogram. Manufacturing steers sold from 240 cents to 317 cents, as grown steers range from 230 to 320 cents, and grown heifers sold from 230 to 285 cents per kilogram. Light cows sold from sixty to one hundred and thirty seven cents, medium cows range from one hundred and seventy to two hundred and sixty seven cents, with heavy cows selling from two hundred to a top of two hundred and ninety five cents per kilogram. Bulls sold from two hundred and thirteen to two hundred and fifty three cents. This has been Elsie Adamo filling in for John Traeger for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service.
1: Thank you, Elsie. That takes us to 24 minutes past 12 here on the country. Are you with Selina Green? Let's go to the weather bureau, and John Fisher is our forecaster today. Hello, John.
7: Good day, Selina. What's the story with the weather? Yeah, look, pretty uh, simple uh, weather at the moment. Uh, we've settled into more of a typical summer pattern uh, over the last few weeks. So uh, yeah, that usual dry conditions and. and Temperatures uh, have been uh, on the milder side, but uh, yeah, starting to, to warm up over the the next few days. So yeah, at the moment we still have that ridge of high pressure across the, the waters to the south there, and uh, that that ridge has got a couple of high centres in there, and they're going to uh, remain to the south uh, through to about the end of the weekend. So uh, not a huge change in the pattern, but uh, yeah, we're just in the south uh, east to southerly airstream, um, and and dry and mostly sunny conditions across the state. Uh, today. temperatures uh, starting to yeah creep up compared to yesterday generally a few degrees for, for most centers um, but uh, yeah fairly straightforward conditions at the moment um, winds still freshening uh, during the afternoon though uh, so we have a couple of uh, strong wind warnings out just for the the Gulf waters today uh, and then into Friday we've uh, got uh, numerous uh, coastal waters uh, with that strong wind warning so uh, a slight freshening of that uh, southerly airstream and but uh, temperatures remaining uh, pretty much similar for, for Friday. Uh, we do have the, the chance of a, a thunderstorm uh, coming back onto the forecast for the far northeast corner of the state up around uh, Moomba, Inaminka though uh, from Friday and that will uh, remain through the weekend into early next week. Um, but uh, not seeing any significant rainfall uh, with that, maybe just some, some localised uh, falls there with thunderstorms, um, but uh, in terms of the, the cumulative rainfalls up until um Next Monday, probably looking at uh, yeah uh, less than five millimeters up through that northeast and uh, potentially down the uh, the eastern border um, with uh, some some showers or storms uh, on Monday. Um, but uh, yeah, as I mentioned. Temperature's continuing to uh, gradually climb up, so looking like uh, fairly warm. to a hot day there on, on Sunday. Temperature's generally above average and uh, well above average by the time we get through to Monday, so probably um, looking at temperatures in the kind of 8 to uh, 12 degrees above average uh, across the state, so um, either in the... the you know, mid to high 30s or or if not uh, 40 um, into the low 40s through inland parts. So that's probably going to be the the peak in the temperatures for most parts of the state there uh, on Monday. Uh, And and winds also easing off then um, with with the high moving uh, out into the Tasman Sea. Uh, but we do have a change coming in uh, on, on Tuesday there, Selena, so um, it is a mostly dry change, maybe just a slight chance of a, a shower or thunderstorm ahead of that change, mainly over uh, eastern parts, so kind of on and east of the, the ranges, but in general it's going to be a dry change and uh, coming across western and southern parts fairly early on the Tuesday so uh, likely to, to see those temperatures um, drop back in the, the earlier part of the day uh, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see that change extend throughout uh, by Wednesday and, and Go back into a, a milder southerly airstream for the the middle part of uh, next week, Selena. So yeah, look, it is looking like a a really uh, stable, um, you know, fairly typical summertime conditions at the moment. And uh, uh, yeah, the early warnings are the, the coastal wind warnings I mentioned, and uh, also the the warning for the inland rivers uh, continuing and and up in the far northeast corner of the state, and that's likely to continue for um, you know a number of days, if not weeks, uh, with, with further floodwaters potentially coming in uh, from southwest Queensland.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly you've seen pictures of just how much water is coming through that system. There is plenty of it to come. John, thanks so much. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thank you. John Fisher there from the Weather Bureau. Now, having a look at the western inland of New South Wales and the forecast for Friday for the Upper Western District, partly cloudy with a slight chance of a shower in the north, near zero chance elsewhere, and there's a chance of a thunderstorm. Southeasterly winds around 20 to 30 k's now. Overnight temps down to between nineteen and twenty-three. Daytime temperatures in the low to mid-thirties. For the lower Western District tomorrow, a sunny day. There is a chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast in the late afternoon and evening, with light winds becoming south to south easterlies fifteen to twenty-five k's now. In the middle of the day, with overnight temperatures falling to between sixteen and nineteen degrees. With daytime temps reaching the low to mid-thirties. It's coming up to half past twelve here on the South Australian Country Hour. Up next, we'll learn a little bit more about the origin story of a very popular Australian board game, uh, one that taught a lot of people about the realities of off-country life.
0: You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green.
8: Selena Green.
1: Afternoon. Now are you someone who accesses childcare? If so what kind of services are you using, or if you're in desperate need of childcare, what kind of childcare service would you like to be able to access? Family daycare is an option that is often more widely used in rural and remote areas, but the number of places available for family daycare have been on a steady decline, which can create some big challenges for country communities. So what can be done about it? I'll take a look at that very shortly. And do you love playing board games? Maybe you've got a favourite board game. I'm quite partial to Cluedo myself, but maybe you have fond memories of playing Squatter. It's one of the most successful Australian-made board games ever.
9: 19 hundred fifty six he came up with the idea, sat down, wrote out the whole concept of the game in one night, he built the prototype and tested it that, and he tested it with us. I was probably about seven or eight by the time I was playing the game full on, um, and we played that prototype amongst our family.
1: Stickle them around to learn a bit more about the origin story, but what memories do you have of playing squatter? Maybe you've still got a copy of the game. Somewhere in the cupboard, let me know. My talkback number one three hundred triple two eight nine one or the text line is zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. I've got lots coming up, but first let's get news headlines from Chris McLaughlin. Good afternoon, Chris.
10: Hello, Selena. The US military says a senior commander of an Iran backed Katayib Hezbollah militia has been killed in a drone strike in Baghdad. The Pentagon says the commander was responsible for directing attacks on American forces in the region, including a drone attack which killed three U.S. personnel in Jordan. The International Olympic Committee Vice President John Coates wants Brisbane's Gabba Stadium rebuild scrapped. He says the $2.7 billion redevelopment for the 2032 Olympics and Paralympics is damaging the game's brand. Changes to industrial relations laws are set to pass federal parliament today with the government securing its support from the Greens and the crossbench. Minimum standards will be introduced for gig workers while employees will have the right to ignore phone calls and emails after hours. And Flinders University has officially opened its new city campus at Festival Plaza in Adelaide. It will occupy eight floors of the 29 level tower. The location of the campus also positions Flinders as a competitor to the merged Adelaide University opening in 2026. More ABC News at one o'clock.
1: Thank you, Chris. Chris McLaughlin with those headlines. Well, first today, a group of Ni Vanuatu seasonal workers have launched what's been described as Australia's largest sexual harassment claim against their former employer. The 12 women are taking one of Australia's largest horticulture companies, Perfection Fresh, to court, accusing them of not providing a safe workplace, free from sexual harassment and assault. Perfection Fresh has farms in Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland and here in South Australia, and the allegations in this case relate, relate to incidents at a work site in South Australia. Elsie Kennedy and Mackenzie Smith have the story. We've been
2: That's a song called Heat of the Sun. It's part of an album launched this week by a group of seasonal workers calling themselves the Perfection 12. The women, who are all members of the United Workers' Union, are taking large horticulture employer Perfection Fresh to court. They're suing the company for nearly $4 million, alleging they were sexually assaulted while working at a tomato glass house in South Australia. Pacific Beat reporter Mackenzie Smith spoke to United Workers' Union representative Katerina Chinani.
11: This case uh, that's been brought against Perfection Fresh is, we believe, one of the biggest sexual harassment cases in Australia. These women, and there are 12 women who have come forward, 11 of them are seasonal workers from Vanuatu, but one actually is a woman who is based locally in South Australia. The circumstances surrounding the case uh, uh, that there are allegations of ongoing systematic uh, harassment and abuses that have occurred. Uh, the women uh, work in a glasshouse facility in Two Wells in South Australia, which is one of the largest tomato glasshouses in Australia, and they pick and pack all the baby tomatoes that will probably end up in our lunch boxes uh, this week as we're packing our. Kids lunchboxes for school, the work they've done, and they've, and many of them have been coming to Australia and working over an ongoing period of time, like multiple years. These incidences occurred over a period of time, um, and were repetitive and ongoing. And it's only really been because these women have organised themselves and spoken through their union that they uh, that we've, these stories have been revealed.
7: The the company Perfection Fresh claims it's not responsible for what happened to these women because it suspended, took action and suspended these employees. Why do you believe the company does have a responsibility here?
11: There's a number of factors. Firstly, legally, employers have a responsibility to provide a safe workplace. These women were working in the Perfection Fresh glasshouse when these incidents occurred. The perpetrators... Were perfection fresh employees. But ultimately, the moment they enter that glass house, it is the employer's responsibility to ensure that the workplace that these women are working in is safe, it's free from sexual harassment. No woman should be asked to go to work and face what these women have. So it's legally their responsibility, but actually morally, it's their workplace. This is where these incidents occurred. We've got everything from sexual propositioning, inappropriate language and behaviour, instances of physical groping and sexual assault. One woman has documented 100 allegations of groping and it's occurred in the glasshouse itself where these women work. Therefore, it's the employer's responsibility to ensure that that did not occur, and to provide mechanisms to ensure that it does not occur for any other woman in that workplace.
7: Were these women particularly vulnerable because most of them were seasonal workers?
11: I mean, all 12 women are insecure casual workers. 11 of them happen to be on a seasonal work visa. So the common factor is that employment model of insecure work it is a driver, um, uh, an underlying driver of, of exploitation. And, you know, if your shifts in income are dependent on the rostering arrangements and ensuring that you have favour with whoever it is that's in charge of rostering, then that model of employment lends itself to abuse. And that's what's occurred here. So it's not particularly that they were on a visa because it has occurred to other women um, in that workplace who were not on visas. It is that they're in insecure work plus they're on an insecure visa. And so the threat of not getting shifts in income is huge when you rely on that, and especially when you've come from um, another country and that is your sole source of income uh, while you're here and you rely on it to send money back.
1: That was United Workers' Union Representative Executive Director Katerina Chinani, who is ending that report from Elsie Kennedy and Mackenzie Smith. Now, in a statement, a Perfection Fresh spokesperson said the company had policies and processes for raising complaints and said the protection of complainants... Uh, and the protection of complainants and, I quote, takes any allegation of sexual harassment extremely seriously. Perfection Fresh said it treated the complaints made against two employees very seriously when they were raised and responded accordingly. The statement goes on to say, in both cases, Perfection Fresh took immediate steps to remove the persons accused of sexual harassment from the workplace and to investigate the matters raised. In both cases, the employment of the accused person came to an end. Perfection Fresh says it acknowledges the very serious nature of the complaints and the impact the alleged conduct on the women involved. It says, we remain committed to providing a safe workplace for all workers. And the statement wraps up by saying, as the allegations are currently the subject of proceedings before the federal court, Perfection Fresh cannot make any other further comment. And of course, if you or someone you know is affected by sexual harassment or assault, family or domestic violence, you can reach out to 1800RESPECT, 1-80-737-732. Of course, if it is an emergency, call 000.
0: This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill.
1: Are you someone who has struggled to access childcare? The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has spent the last year investigating how effectively the childcare market is working and it's recommended urgent reform in regional, rural and remote Australia to address the gaping shortages that exist. Some of those changes revolve around family daycare, which is an option often more widely used in country areas and remote parts of Australia. But as Family Daycare Australia's CEO Andrew Patterson told me, it's been on a long-term decline.
12: Yeah, look, the sector has been uh, under some pressure for uh, some time, none the least of which have been some viability pressures that have uh, arisen through uh, factors like the childcare subsidy fee cap uh, for family daycare.
1: And this is something that I understand disproportionately affects people in rural and remote areas. These are areas where family daycare is uh, often taken up more as, as an option for people?
12: Yeah, absolutely. We know that um, family daycare is a great option for families and communities across uh, regional and rural Australia. It's often uh, by far the most viable care type um, given often the remoteness of of communities and families and uh, is often far better suited to um, to supporting those families. So uh, the decline in in family daycare services across those regions is um, particularly apparent uh, in terms of its impact on uh, rural families.
1: Now, the ACCC report, uh, looking at it, it acknowledges a number of things around family daycare, and one of that is that the current system or model of subsidy, as you referred to before, isn't isn't supporting uh, the, the growth of the family daycare sector?
12: Yeah, that's right. Look, since uh, even before the introduction of the childcare subsidy fee cap back in 2018, uh, we advocated that the fee cap for family daycare was inequitable and inadequate, uh, it's great to see that the ACCC has uh, affirmed our position and uh, we look forward to working with the government to, uh, to rectify the fee cap and to make it work for um, families and communities across Australia and particularly in regional and rural areas. The, the provision of care, it, it costs more just simply by way of uh, the geographic uh, disparity of communities and families and um, uh, it's certainly an issue that's, uh, that is affecting those communities.
1: Just talk us through that about the, the challenge of setting up a service like this in a remote area. I mean, obviously, other than a, a, a physical daycare centre would need a, a physical building and to be paying rates and, and staff and all those sorts of things. What are the overheads like for setting up a, a family daycare practice?
12: One of the big challenges is the fact that you have a, a two-tiered model. You have the family daycare approved service, which is a lot like a head office, if you like. Uh, and the family daycare educator oper- operating from their own home, and there is a requirement for the service to uh, maintain uh, oversight support of those family daycare educators. That um, geographic distance um, presents some challenges. So, uh, in terms of bringing new educators in, we need to look at mechanisms that we uh, are able to employ to reduce some of the barriers to entry, particularly uh, in terms of getting the educators uh, home up to speed to deliver family daycare. And we look at we need to look at mechanisms to better support the service to support its educators.
1: How important is it to ensure that family daycares are a part of the mix when it comes to addressing the, the the shortages that we are seeing and the 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 black holes really we are seeing in in daycare options in in regional areas?
12: Yeah, I think it's vitally important that we look at how we can better leverage the capabilities of family daycare across rural Australia. Uh, it is vitally important; it's widely recognised by. Uh, governments, both federal and state and territory, um, of the role of family daycare in these communities and uh, we need to get behind the sector, uh, support new educators in support services, um, in in working with those educators uh, if we're going to be able to really give children and families across rural Australia um, the opportunities that uh, their counterparts have in, in metro areas.
1: How hopeful are you now of seeing some change in that subsidy and the way that system is structured now that the ACCC has made these recommendations?
12: We're really hopeful um, of seeing um, some changes to the childcare subsidy fee cap uh, for family daycare care and funding models uh, more broadly. We're already seeing uh, and working with the Commonwealth Government uh, around mechanisms by, mechanisms by which we can bring uh, new educators uh, into those areas. Um, and I think off the back of the ACCC report, uh, we're, we're in a really good place to, uh, to work with government to make some adjustments to those funding mechanisms.
1: That is Family Daycare Australia's CEO, Andrew Patterson. How to relax with Tom Gleeson from Hard Quiz. Holiday. Throwing in a line. Great time. Are the fish biting?
2: Hard. <sighs> Cruising on a pushy. Don't forget to pedal.
11: Hard.
2: And generally getting teed off. Don't swing too. Ah! How's the serenity, Tom? I need to go back
8: to work to relax.
2: (laughs) The new season of Hard Quiz. Ah! Wednesday nights on
13: ABC TV and always free, always entertaining on ABC iview.
1: It's 16 minutes to one. Well, when you're having a glass of milk or a nice milky coffee, I don't know if you give much thought about how that milk got out of the cow. Well, a circular composting system for dairy cows at Blythe in the states mid-north is now paving the way for milking by robots. With the composting system up and running, dairy farmer Gary Zweck and his family are now investing in a robotic voluntary milking system. And after the volat- volatility that the milk market has experienced in recent times, including the closures of dairy farms across South Australia, Mrs Beck says that the voluntary milking systems or robots could potentially change how the dairy industry operates.
3: So we've got a shed here that's 100 metres long, just been extended by 15 metres, this bit here, the shiny bit, and that's where the robots are going in. So, the, But the actual compost part, where that cow's resting and loafing, that's basically composted cow manure so and it's probably nearly uh, 800 mil deep where it is and this morning when I got the milking herd out I just come in with a power harrow and uh, just power harrowed that and so when they come out that dry is quite the top is quite dry and uh, quite comfortable they would have had a bit of feed in front of them and at the same time this Area here was flood washed, so the big tank at the end has recycled water that just comes down and whooshes it away, already added to the manure already. It is flushed twice a day every day, and that stuff actually goes down through a recycling setup that we've got down there, and we actually screw the manure out of the water, and then the water goes onto a two-pond system, and that gets pumped up the top again and recycled. The cows are here, feed got put out probably an hour ago. We always liked them fully fed, all the time and they've had enough they just go back and chew their cud and relax like you're walking here and the cows are all quiet I um, they love their spuds don't you girls little granddaughter loves coming up here and chucking spuds to cows the circular composting system has been up
13: and running for almost three years, has improved the output of the dairy and has allowed the cows to adjust their behaviour in order to pave the way for the voluntary milking system.
3: Once the shed was up and going and the cows will adjust very quickly to that and really the next start part of that process is to milk robotically because... They're generating more milk, they're working well, uh, they're in controlled conditions, and the next step really is to milk three times a day. We've got a little old old doubled-up herringbone over there that uh, means I'm milking for four hours, morning and night, just to do you know 250 to 300 cows, up to 300 at our peak. And so the next step is to get more milk out of each cow and to do that, the no-brainer part of it is you just go robotic. So it's um, what they do in housing systems in Europe.
13: Another step in the establishment of the process has been the introduction of automatic calf feeders which train the calves to come into more confined spaces for feeding.
3: Well, these are the young calves, they're only born the last four or five days. It's six yesterday and this small. And then we feed them colostrum for the first three or four days and then we train them on the first feeding station there. we can just see the yellow tube pointing down. Train there and then once they're trained up we just sort of push them across and they come out here. So that was part of the auto feeders and also part of that process, they get used to going into that confined place to get a feed and that, I think, helps when they adapt to robots later on.
13: The voluntary milking system will be placed at the end of the circular composting shed. Cameras will line up the milking cups while the cows receive their pre-nominated amount of grain based on the scanning of their electronic ID neck tag.
3: Robots shouldn't be called robots, they should be called voluntary milking systems and the cows will be able to walk off the pack into the holding yard and there'll be three robots in front of them. They either wait in the holding yard for one to be vacant or they just walk straight in, the door's open, walk in, put their head in. As soon as they're in there, the, the cow's registered. It knows how much grain to give the cow. It's preset and it starts trickling grain in at the same time the, the cow's prepared to be cupped up. So it's just all done uh, using cameras just sk- screen where the teats are and the cup is actually in this case it will actually wash the udder, clean the teat and then pre-milk it so strip out a little pre-milk and if it's all okay then we'll start milking it so they'll flow through they come out the other side of the robot uh, and then there's a smart gate uh three-way and so if we want to either do some vet checking or uh, mating a cow, she will get drafted to a temporary pen if she's uh good to go back to the pack she'll just go straight ahead or she's played up in the robot and the robot's not happy and didn't get the milk, didn't get it completely milked out or something, she'll go back to the robot, go back into the system. The
13: milk market has experienced significant fluctuations in the past leading to the closures of many small dairy farms. But changes in the branding of milk, which support farmers, has helped to stabilise the price and has allowed Mr Zweck to make these new investments.
3: So we're um, with Farmer's Own, which is a uh, label through Woolworths. And we've got, there's four dairy farmers in the mid-north, and that supply Farmer's Own directly. The milk tanker comes in here every second day, picks up, goes down to like, the factory at South Road, put in a separate vat there where it's processed, it goes into the Farmer's Own brand, then is our milk in it. And uh, if you go into Woolworths and Clare there and buy a bottle of uh, low-fat milk, you have a picture of my wife Roz on the front. It's helped us in that we've got a sustainable, secure price going forward and has enabled us to do investments like this because, you know, there was just so much turmoil for 10 years ago. It was just up and down. The volatility in the market was horrendous and it's sort of come at a price where we lost a lot of dairy farmers through that period and And now we're just going through a period where there's not enough milk to go around. So, everyone, it's, yeah, the market's up a bit, supply and demand. The current
13: demand for milk, combined with the potential that robotic technology holds, could reinvigorate the dairy industry in South Australia, including through making smaller scale production possible.
3: Back when dad started in the 1970s, I think there was something like 170 dairy farmers in, that were supplying gold milk at the time. But you know, might be milking 10 cows or 20 cows or 30 cows or and just put the cans of milk at the end of the road, picked up and went to clear factories. I think robotics it will generate more and more farmers to go back into the industry because there's not a lot of, of that has happened but the potential is there for old dairy farmers just to stick two robots in there young kid that's sort of full of beans could run a really good operation in the you know, Adelaide Hills, or not, I wouldn't say out here, but in the Adelaide Hills or in somewhere a bit more rainfall where fodder's more secure, they could run a really neat little operation just milk on 120, 130 cows doing probably 1.5 million litres of milk. And I reckon they can make it work. That's the potential. It's always been the get big or get out. I reckon there's that other option too there now with robots, that you don't have to be that big.
13: Given that dairy farming is notoriously known for its hard work, there is one question which still remains. So does that mean less early mornings for you? Yes,
3: absolutely. So all this is meant to happen 24-7 without my input. There'll be a training phase, um, but once they're trained, these guys, they do adapt really easily. Uh, We saw that with the calves, actually. You only had to give them one or two goes on the auto calf feeder and just just let them go. We always check them, but um, it's it's just incredibly simple that was. This is the same. They just get used to it.
1: Gary's work from Blythe ending that report from Kate Higgins. Well, finally today, if you've ever yelled out, Rufus the ram has died. Around the family dining table, you'll know the board game Squatter. Launched at the Royal Melbourne Show back in 1962, the sheep farming game gave players an insight into the highs and lows of earning a living on the land. And it's still one of the most successful Australian board games of all time. Connor Burke
8: has the story. It was over Christmas that I first spotted it. Stuck in an Airbnb on a rainy day on the Victorian coast, I found Squatter at the top of a dusty pile of old board games. The cover caught my eye. I didn't know what a Squatter was for a start, but this old worn copy featured a cowboy on horseback guiding a flock of sheep and piqued my interest. My London brain couldn't quite compute a board game about sheep farming, but when I started to investigate, I found out that this unique and niche piece of Australiana started as a side hustle a way for a travelling salesman to get home to his family. But it turned into a love letter to the land, an educational tool and one of the most successful Australian board games of all time. Its inventor was Bob Lloyd, a city lad from Melbourne who gained a deep connection to rural life, working as a farmhand on his in-law's property in Locke, South Gippsland. Bob, who died in 2019, is remembered by his son Richard as a fun-loving bloke, a dreamer who loved the latest gadgets and toys.
9: Dad was um, fun loving. There was a couple of things I mentioned earlier that he used to spend a lot of time away from home when I was little.
7: Mm.
9: Every time that he came home, he brought us something, and then every now and again, he'd bring something like he might have seen a novel toy. And on one occasion, uh, he brought back a toy and when you wound it up, it had suction caps on it and it walked up the wall and across the ceiling and down the other wall. And, um, like, we had fun with it, but I think Dad had more fun watching it do that than we did. In
8: 1956, Bob was on the road working, desperate to find a way to support his family and come home to them full-time. A man of faith, he prayed for inspiration. And driving through the Wimmera region in Western Victoria one day, he looked out the window and noticed the sheep grazing in the paddocks. And the thought suddenly came to him, Richard says.
9: And I was six years old when he actually came home with with the idea for Squatter. Over the next few years, um, I can remember Dad preparing the prototype. I can remember him sitting there with a gem razor blade and a, uh, a ruler, a wooden ruler. And uh, on, the, on the squatter board, the, uh, each property is divided up into paddocks. And on his prototype, he'd cut out strips of cardboard that were possibly about one millimetre wide, and he glued those down onto his prototype board. That was the um, meticulous manner in which he sort of put together the board. That was done over a two-year period. So, 1956, he came up with the idea, sat down, wrote out the whole concept of the game in one night. He built the prototype and tested it, that, and he tested it with us. I was probably about uh, seven or eight by the time I was playing the game full on, um, and we played that prototype amongst our family.
8: Squatter is essentially a game about the highs and lows of earning a living as a farmer and is still in production six decades after it was launched. And while the board game industry is booming with more choice than ever, Squatter has stood the test of time, having sold more than 700,000 copies since it was first published in 1962. University of Melbourne board game researcher Melissa Rogerson says Squatter's popularity remains strong at a time when thousands of games come out a year.
7: So... For a long time,
2: we could easily say it was the most successful Australian board game. Um, And what really stands out about it is its longevity, right? That it it was published in uh, 1962, I think. Board games do extremely well. There are thousands of new board games published every year. So it's very easy to sink in that in that sea of new board
8: game. Each player starts with a sheep station, made up of five natural pasture paddocks. The first player to irrigate all their paddocks and to be fully stocked with sheep wins. Bob wanted the game to be fun, but also an educational tool for farmers on the latest in agricultural practice. National Wool Museum director Padraic Fisher says perhaps squatter's biggest impact is to give the wider community an insight into farming, but the game is also an important cultural artefact.
12: But in terms of its place within the Australian psyche, I think it's also important. Um, if, you know, 20 years ago, if you had surveyed Australians, the preponderance of them, you know, more than 75% would have had some kind of direct association with something agricultural. But today, I, I would think that that statistic is flipped. But it also holds on to parts of Australian culture that, may have disappeared or may be thinning a little bit. You know, it, it references language like Australian vernacular and Aussieisms like like um, Tucker Bag, uh, you know, so it keeps those kinds of uniquely Australian, you know, Australiana alive.
8: But really, Squatter became Bob's ode to Australian farming and those long days on his in-law's property.
9: When he lived on uh, my grandparent's property... He said one of the things he enjoyed the most, he had a horse, he was given a horse, he'd never ridden a horse before he got onto that farm, but his, one of his daily jobs was to ride the boundary of a 300-acre property and to check on the livestock, so, and um, he said he, he enjoyed that time more than anything else, and he really loved the rural community.
1: That's Richard Lloyd. He's the son of squatter board game inventor Bob Lloyd, and he's speaking there with Connor Burke. If you want to read more about this story and reminisce about some family fun of playing squatter over the years, you can read more on the ABC News website. It's almost time for the one o'clock news. Time to check in with Nikolai Bailharts and find out what he's got for you on afternoons. Hi, Nikolai.
14: Good afternoon. How are you?
1: I am good. What have you got for us today?
14: Well, um, how, what's the longest you've ever worked in uh, in a job?
1: Oh, probably this one.
14: <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's a good sign. That is
1: a good sign.
14: Yeah. I've, I've I've been at the ABC for I think this is my 17th year at the
1: wow, ABC. Wow. You're a bit um, up on me by a few couple of years.
14: Get getting there, but no, I I don't even hold a candle to a man that we're going to meet tonight who is just about to mark 50 years in the same job. Wow. Um, yeah. So I won't won't tell you what that job is yet, but I'm very curious to find out about I mean it's got to be There's got to be a a couple of different levels of that that make it a good job to stay at it for that long, I reckon.
1: Absolutely. Mm.
14: So we're we talking about that. We're also going to be talking too about um, this idea that's been raised about the potential to make local council voting compulsory alongside state and federal voting. Uh, that question's being asked, so we'll look at that too.
1: Oh, that's an interesting one. Mm. Should be a great show coming up. Stick around for Nicolai. He'll be on your radio for afternoons. Thank you so much for your company today. I'll be back tomorrow. It's news time.
0: To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the App Store on your phone, search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations, now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket.
2: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.